This episode of the Flush Podcast is brought to you by Walton's, Aluma Trailers, North Dakota Tourism, Federal Ammunition, Onyx Hunt, and by Nutrisource Pet Foods. My guest today is Emily Spoliar from Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Emily lives, works, and hunts in western North Dakota's bird country, but she also travels around North America in pursuit of upland birds. When Emily speaks, I listen. You'll soon find out why. Welcome to another episode of the Flush Podcast. I'm Travis Frank. I'm your host today and pretty much every week. Brandon Morton, he's your producer today and pretty much every week. Brandon, how are you feeling on this fine fall day? I'm doing great. The weather's perfect outside. It's absolutely beautiful. And we're in this glorious conference room with no windows. I know. I struggle this time of the year big time because I'm, I'm in hunt mode right now. I am definitely like just going a little bit stir crazy anytime that I can't be outside and my wife understands this (laughs) so she accepts it Uh, but I just I just crawled out of the woods and I'm gonna jump right back into it grouse uh, the the cover right now is starting to come down it's still very thick out there Um, I think the number of birds that my dog points that I uh, actually take is, is in <laughs> the, the ratio. Like, the ratio is not very good. It'll keep getting better. But even with the ratio, um, you know, one out of 10, one out of seven, something like that. Uh, I still put like seven grouse in the bag the other day or the, this past weekend. Um, you know, and if I'm doing one out of 10, you do the math on how many birds. That's pretty good. Yeah, That's a lot man. of birds. Yeah, You're seeing been, a lot. It's been a fun time. I had some new wow. hunters out there with me. We're filming another show. Uh, Bill Shirk's in Maine right now. He's filming a grouse hunt up there. We're it's, it's happening. It's, it's busy season right That's now. Awesome. Um, and on, uh, before we jump into our guest today, the conversation with Emily, <clears throat> I do want to remind our listeners that we have another live podcast coming up on October 13th at 7 p.m. at Bear Cave Brewing in Hopkins, Minnesota. Uh, that's just two days before Minnesota's pheasant season opens. So if you're in this neck of the woods, we'd love to have you join us. We have a lot of great gifts to give away from our sponsors. If you want an Onyx Elite membership, Come to the show. <laughs> if you need some new hats and some, uh, I don't know what we're all going to bring this time, but we had a lot a of lot stuff. A lot of yeah, stuff. The whole yeah. table was full of stuff. To yeah, plus it's fun. It's a yeah. lot more fun when people are there to interact and ask questions. We want to we want to help people become better bird hunters uh, and also just inspire them to get out there and, and have fun with it. Yeah, well, and it's a great place, too. I, I can't mm-hmm. speak highly enough about Bear Cave Brewery and how cool of a place mm-hmm. it is. Like, it's actually a fun place to visit. So if you are from out of town, want to see a cool brewery it's it's on the outskirts of the twin cities so you don't have to come to downtown minneapolis or anything like that you're you're in a different area it's three floors you can have pizza you can have fine dining you can have beer that they make so come down for that as well i'm just saying it's something else to come down i think i mentioned this during the live show but i I thought it was interesting that they give you um like a scan code yeah and then you've got a wall full of all these taps of different beers you can just scan which one you you know run your uh, whatever it's like a wristband, wristband. Yeah. yeah run it underneath this thing and then all of a sudden you get whatever beer you want self serve it's self serve beer anytime beer. you want go up and get it <laughs> yeah 
Um, let's, let's start today's show with a listener question. Maybe we'll do this regularly. Uh, this one comes from Luke Holm, Holm, H-U-L-M-E. Sure. Yeah. Okay. It's from Luke. Anyway. Hey, Travis, I'm going on my first pheasant hunt ever, ever on Saturday, ever was all capitalized. I was wondering if getting out at sunrise is too early. I like to beat other folks to the fields. Thank you, and have a safe and successful season. Well, first of all, Luke, we're pumped that you are going on your first pheasant hunt. That's awesome. Um, my response, uh, maybe I'll bring Emily in here, because when I hunted with Emily, Emily Spoliar is our guest today. Um, Emily, I'll give my advice, and then you can jump in on this one, too. But last fall, when we hunted with Emily, we got out very early in the morning. Now, to answer Luke's question... It depends on where you're hunting. He didn't specify if he was hunting in North Dakota or if he was hunting in a different state. Some states have uh, different, or each state has their own time when you can get out and hunt for pheasants. Either way, let's take uh, Minnesota, for instance. If you can get out at 9 a.m. is when you can legally start hunting for pheasants. That doesn't mean you don't want to be at the property early. One, if it's a public property that might have a lot of people come and you can be there and be ready uh, and talk to people that might show up and give them your plan of attack. Say, I'm going to be hunting here. Typically, most hunters are going to say, oh, you're here already. I'll go find another spot. Um, if you're late, then to be respectful, that's something that you should do to somebody else that's already there or talk to them and ask if you can join them or figure out where they're going and then go a different direction. But either way, there's something uh, about being on a property at first light. You get to watch the field wake up. You get to see where the birds are going, where they're feeding, where they might be coming back into the cover. And ultimately, by watching, you're going to get a better idea of where you should be hunting pheasants. So, Luke, my answer is yes. You want to be out there at first light, even before sunrise, if you can, and just watch it. And there's also, if you're a coffee drinker sitting there watching a prairie at sunrise, it's pretty spectacular. And that, to me, is, is part of the hunt. Now, Emily Spoliar, welcome to the conversation. Would you add anything to my response to Luke? You know, I would, I would echo a lot of what you said. I am kind of a little bit of a fanatic. So <laughs> I like to get there as soon as possible. Um, for a lot of the reasons you mentioned also, because depending on how early in season, and if he's going this weekend, it might still be pretty warm out later in the day. Um, so for good dog work, I like to try to get them out as early as possible before it gets too warm. Um, and, you know, like you mentioned, being able to sit there and listen to the roosters crow as, as the sun rises and um, all of that just really adds to the experience. But one of the things I love about upland hunting is even if I don't roll out of bed until later in the morning, um, it's, it's never a bad idea to go out and spend time in the field. So, yeah, you might be a little, you might find success a little bit quicker if you're out there first thing in the morning. Um, but I'd rather be out there any time of day than not out there at all. So yeah. it's nice. It has that flexibility. It's not like, you know, waterfowl hunting, uh, where if you're not there and set up before sunrise, then, um, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot as far as hunting success goes. But 
um, you know, you're, you're able to find success throughout the day. There's just certain times that it might come a little bit quicker and easier. Well, Emily Spoliar is my guest today. Emily, I appreciate you taking the time. I mentioned right off the top that when you speak, I listen. It's because you are like a lethal hunter. I feel bad for the birds when you jump into the <laughs> field because you're bringing home a bag full every single time. You have a lot of knowledge. So I appreciate you taking the time today to join us. What is your official job title at Pheasants Forever? Yeah, well, first, thank you for having me. I appreciate you taking the time to sit down and have a conversation. Um, my job title is I'm a precision ag and conservation specialist. So most people, when they think of Pheasants Forever employees, uh, they, they think of our farm bill biologists who are the backbone of our organization alongside our, our chapter volunteers and partners. Um, precision ag and conservation specialists are similar, but different. So I'm working, still putting habitat on the ground, working with farmers and landowners um, to implement CRP and uh, help people sign up for public access and, you know, do all similar outcomes to what farm bill biologists are doing. Just a little bit of a different approach where I'm looking at more of their data and, um, their uh, economic information to figure out where we can put habitat that makes the most sense for their business. Um, at the end of the day, every farmer is trying to run a successful business and being able to make conservation minded decisions that are backed by the dollars and cents makes those decisions a lot easier for them. Um, makes my job a lot easier giving that sales pitch of this is why you should do it. You know, not everyone's motivated by seeing more birds and wildlife out on their properties. Um, it's just the way it is, good, bad, or indifferent. And uh, so this this allows us to approach things from a, a little bit of a different aspect. We put our farmer hat on. We really try to make sure we're understanding all aspects of their operation and then making recommendations based on that. What do you think is the biggest motivating factor for the landowners that you work with to ultimately get them to put habitat back on the ground? Oh, it, it varies wildly. Um, in North Dakota, we have quite a few people who own land who actually live out of state. And so some of those people own land specifically for pheasant hunting. And so when they come out here, their biggest objective is to have some great pheasant hunts, to put some roosters in the bag, and to see an abundance of wildlife out on their properties. Um, now, their motivations differ a little bit from someone who's trying to run a very large scale, you know, several thousand acre farming operation. Oftentimes, you know, they're more focused on their efficiency. And so if they're able to cut back on some of their inputs on acres that are consistently not turning a profit for them, um, then that's where their motivation often comes from is being able to operate their business more efficiently um, with input costs for farming continuously on the rise. They're having to really take a hard look at their operations acre by acre, not just as a, a whole farm average and figure out where they can make some management changes to, to be a little bit more efficient with their time and money and resources. So it just depends. Um, and you know, we, we take all kinds here. Uh, I always say it doesn't really matter to me what their motivation is because the end result is often the same. Um, the acreage size might differ, differ a little bit, but, uh, if I'm doing my job right, then the outcome is more habitat on the ground and hopefully more birds in the bag for people. 
Do you have a number that you guys at, at Pheasants Forever kind of work with to say like as a whole across the country or maybe it's by state or region, you know, how much of the land is farmed that shouldn't be that ends up being, um, you know, they put, they put seeds in the ground, whether it's soybeans or corn, but ultimately don't get to harvest it because it floods out or um, it's just not good soil in those areas. I mean, is there kind of like you guys, I mean, I mean, this might just be a too difficult question to really wrap your, <clears throat> wrap your head around, but like, do we know how much land out there shouldn't be farmed? So on average, what we see is about eight to 10% of the acreage that an operation is running on is historically consistently unprofitable or, you know, under a certain threshold of, uh, of production. And, um, so about that eight to 10%, I think is, is average on what we see. Um, now I've seen different numbers from different studies, but, um, I think that that's, that's a pretty conservative, um, range there. Uh, because even, you know, when you're driving around here in North Dakota, especially in Western North Dakota, there's a lot of areas that struggle with saline issues and you drive by the field and, uh, you see this big patch of crusty white soil or, um, just a, a spot that's on a hilltop that's burnt up. We don't get a whole lot of moisture out here. Um, you know, there's areas on every operation that, the operators struggle to turn a profit on. Um, so that's really what we're targeting. And by doing that, the end goal being to create more of a mosaic on the landscape, you know, where we find a, a better balance between ag production and wildlife habitat, um, because it's, it's very doable. It's very attainable. Um, it just takes taking a hard look at those acres and making sure that they're performing like you need them to be. And if they're not firing them and putting them into into uh, habitat or some type of conservation program. Um, so we can hopefully build that soil health back up and while doing that also provide wildlife habitat. So when you drive by and you see those spots, do you just pull over and knock on their door and say, hi, I'm Emily. I work with Fessus Forever. <laughs> I see you've got some acres that are struggling and I think I can help you. Or what's your, how do you attack this? How do you get into the farmer's uh, kitchen and sit down with them? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm not quite that brave to be oh, able to, <laughs> to just walk up and say, hey, looks like you're having some issues out here. Let me tell you how to do your job. Right. Um, but no, we do a lot of a lot of outreach efforts that just lets people know, hey, we're here. If you need us, here's here's some of the things we can offer. And that varies from in-person events, field tours, working with partners always to um, help promote the programs that they have available and, um, and then doing mailings and, you know, everything on social media. We try to cover all our bases with getting the word out about what we're doing and how we can help because it genuinely is a service. I mean, it, it doesn't cost anything for these producers to sit down and talk to us about what's available. Um, we aren't trying to twist anyone's arm to force them into any certain direction. It's just, here's, here's what things are looking like right now based on your data. Um, here's some options that are available. And if you want to move forward with these, great, let's do it. Um, but you know, it's, it's nice to not have to 
feel like you're trying to really pressure them in, in one direction or another. And I think because of that, it's pretty well received. And um, so we're really starting to see some great uh, some great success stories here. We've got three precision ag and conservation specialists on the ground in North Dakota, um, including myself. We've got Austin Lang over in Jamestown and then Warren Swenson up in Minot. So we've got pretty much the whole state covered between the three of us. So if there's anyone in North Dakota who is interested in, in having a conversation about what's available and how we can help, um, we're always happy to do so. Um, you can find our contact information on the Pheasants Forever website. Uh, you can search us in the Find a Biologist page. We have an actual Precision Ag uh, website on the, the PF homepage. Um, and then we're available, too, on all social media platforms at North Dakota Pheasants Forever, um, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And just reach out, um, and, and we'll get you connected with the right person in the right area and um, let you know what we can do for you. And I have to imagine that's the same out of, out of North Dakota, too. If somebody in South Dakota or Minnesota or Iowa uh, has the same issue or they know somebody that uh, farms a property and there's a couple of spots that just continuously aren't performing, um, they can reach out to a biologist in that particular state and somebody, even if they can't help you, they'll know the person that can in that region. Is that accurate? That, that is accurate. Yes. All right. Well, you mentioned that you are in Western North Dakota. So, um, how long are we, uh, yeah. How long have you been working in that area? I moved out here from Michigan in 2018. So in the, in the fall of 2018, um, I'm, my first day of work, I think, was October 10th, so I'm approaching my my four-year mark, uh, which is crazy to think about. But um, yeah, it was it was about four years ago that I saw my first wild pheasants ever, and um, so it's it's been kind of a whirlwind whirlwind journey since then uh, to get to where I'm at now with all the different experiences I've gotten to have. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll never ever forget the first plots field I walked through, which was just a few miles south of the apartment I was living in. Um, I flushed a few pheasants with my little cocker spaniel. And I mean, that, that was all it took to let me know that I had made the right decision moving out here and, uh, that, that this was my, this was my home where I belonged and, and that I was gonna, I was gonna be okay. It's amazing to know that only four years ago you moved out there and now you're literally climbing mountains with your dogs <laughs> and hunting for birds all over North America. We'll get into some of your adventures and how they come to be and what you've learned while just jumping in your own vehicle and driving around the, the, the world to hunt. But <laughs> speaking, you know, keeping it right in, in the, the habitat conversation that we started here, what... Um, well, I'll say this. Last week, Jared Wicklin and I, we broke down... Uh, the 2022 pheasant hunting forecasts around the country. We did touch on North Dakota, and there's a lot to be excited about this year. But I, I did mention that you were coming on, so we didn't dive too deep into what you're seeing out there. But can you do a quick North Dakota overview of the habitat and the bird numbers that you're seeing right now around the state? Yeah, I am. I'm excited for pheasant opener. I think it'll be a really good year. Of course, I 
have not been here during the the golden years when this place was just crawling with pheasants. Um, so keep that in mind. I mean, like I said, I saw my first wild pheasants <laughs> four years ago. So um, I have a little bit of a of a uh, different viewpoint than what some people might. But I'm excited. Game and Fish reported numbers across the state being up by, I think it was 8%, um, which I think varies quite a bit depending on what specific area you're in. I know here in the Southwest, we got some pretty good rains for most of the summer. It did dry up towards the end, mostly middle, end of August. Um, but we got some really timely rains. All the habitat looks phenomenal. Um, if you have a short-legged dog, they're going to be <laughs> they're going to be working really hard this year. Uh, but I think that their hard efforts will will be paid off with some good numbers of birds. Um, wasn't so last year. You know, we had the drought. There was a lot of emergency hang and grazing going on. I think across the board, you can expect to see a lot more habitat, and then the habitat that's there being. Uh, really, really good quality habitat this year because we did get some good rains. And so we, we saw a lot of really great growth. Um, all the broods I saw throughout the summer, for the most part, were really large broods. They looked great. They looked really healthy. Um, so, I mean, I think it'll be a good year. Not that I want not that I want everyone knocking down our doors here, but <laughs> but I do want people to to come experience North Dakota um, and and to get to see what I get to see out my back door every day uh, and to get to see the the hard work, you know, that, that we do as employees and that our chapters do um, to keep habitat on the landscape. And, of course, our, our partner organizations here, you know, we work hard to keep habitat on the landscape. And so being able to um, harvest some roosters off of that, there's – not really a better feeling. And, and I know what it feels like to travel from out of state and just want to see wild birds. Um, so I think that if it's something you've been kicking around the idea of doing, this might be a good year to try it. Absolutely. You do a lot of duck hunting as well. You're, you're in the field. Are you in the field seven days a week, Emily? (laughs) Oh, well, the thing is, it's a lot easier for me because, I mean, I'm not kidding when I say I can walk out my back door. Oh, I know. I've seen your back door. It's phenomenal view. My goodness. It's it's a tough thing for some people to understand because some people have to drive long distances to go hunting. And I understand that growing up in Michigan, I didn't, I lived in town. I didn't have public land around. Yep. I understand that, but, but yeah, I, I do get out as often as I can, um, because it's so accessible and I would feel almost guilty if I didn't because I'm right here and, um, and I love it and I want to experience it as much as I can while the season's here. Hunting season is here, and North Dakota is one of my favorite places to spend a fall day. That's because North Dakota is a bird hunting paradise. You can hunt both waterfowl and upland birds all in the same day, and North Dakota has approximately 700,000 acres of private land open to public walk-in hunting. This year, North Dakota has a population estimate of 3.4 million breeding ducks, which is 38% above the long-term average, and their prairie pothole region is smack dab in the middle of the central flyway. Their spring water index 
also came way up, over 600% from last year's drought. The habitat on the landscape looks great, and bird reports are strong throughout the state. With a little scouting, you just might find yourself in a field surrounded by wild flushing pheasants, sharp-tailed grouse, and Hungarian partridge. Plan a legendary bird hunt this fall in North Dakota at legendarynd.com. I love my dog, and like you, I always want to make sure that she has what she needs to stay healthy year-round and perform at her best in the field. That's why I feed Daisy Nutrisource high-performance dog food. Nutrisource dog food comes with their good-for-life system that includes four key ingredients that work together to support gut health, heart health, and the overall well-being of our dogs. I have complete confidence that my dog has all of the nutrition to excel in the field and make it through a rigorous hunting season. I've seen it firsthand, and she loves her food. Take it from me and my dog, Daisy. Nutrisource high-performance dog food can help your dog reach their full potential. Find the food that's right for your dog at NutrisourcePetFoods.com. If you're an outdoor lover on the go, then odds are good that you have toys and equipment that you want to haul. Aluma Trailers, well, they've got you covered. Their trailers are built by a hardworking team in Bancroft, Iowa. They have models for nearly any and every hauling need, from ATV and UTV trailers to utility, snowmobile, motorcycle, car trailers, and even fully enclosed trailers like mine. Trust me when I say that Aluma Trailers tow like a dream. Their trailers are constructed out of lightweight, strong, corrosion-resistant aluminum, and they are 100% maintenance-free. Plus, they come with an industry-best five-year warranty. Visit alumaklm.com to find a trailer that fits your needs. The waterfall numbers in your area this year, I've heard reports that you know it's going to be a good waterfall season as well, which is important because there's a lot of people, let's say Michigan or Wisconsin or Minnesota, they drive to North Dakota with the goal of hunting ducks and geese in the morning and upland birds during the middle of the day and then scout again in the evening for another duck hunt in the morning. And that's one of the beauties of hunting in North Dakota. At least my buddies and I, I mean, we started doing that when we were in high school. And I'm, I'm told that duck conditions or waterfall conditions are excellent this year. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I've seen a lot of great numbers for waterfowl so far. I do not consider myself to be a waterfowl hunter, really. I mean, I, I go out. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> you lie. Don't be so modest. Every no, day there's no, pictures Travis, with your beautiful dogs is... and their birds in their mouth. Come on. <laughs> Oh, Lord. Um, no, I am not much of a waterfowl hunter, but from what I've seen, yes, uh, bird numbers have been. Now, with that in mind, if I have been able to shoot a couple limits of ducks so far this year, mm-hmm. yes, there's your sign that that <laughs> waterfowl numbers are good. <laughs> because, um, yeah, I'm, I'm still figuring a lot of things out when it comes to waterfowl hunting. Um, so I, I think that, you know, people, especially who are coming here from out of state, um, are really going to have a great time this year. I mean, I've, I've already had a great time and we're still pretty early into season. Uh, so it's, there's a lot of great things going on in North Dakota right now. Um, a lot of great bird numbers. Habitat looks phenomenal. Yeah. So, it's a pretty special place. Absolutely. I can't wait. I'm coming out in a couple of weeks, but, uh, what, so I was just in Northern Minnesota and, the area that I was in, you know, they, they had a lot of moisture this spring and the crops got put in late because of all that moisture, which means the crops are still in the field, even wheat and barley and some of those 
crops that typically come out earlier in, you know, or even late August, early September, it's October and they're still in and they're taking them out now. What's the harvest look like where you've been traveling through North Dakota? You know, right around here, I think harvest went pretty smoothly for the most part. Um, all of our small grains are out okay. from what I've seen. Uh, now there's still standing sunflowers, of course, and we've, we've got a little bit of corn around here. Um, those sunflowers really pull the birds in, especially grouse. And that's another reason I do like to get out first thing in the morning um, during this time of year when, when uh, it's just grouse and partridge season, because um, when they come off the roost, if there's a sunflower field around, they're going to be pulled right into that sunflower field. So um, I like to catch them right before that, ideally. It's, but, I'm not going to say it's impossible to get birds out of a sunflower field, but it's almost impossible. Plus, <laughs> you don't want to walk through standing crops. As I believe that without permission, is it written permission? How does that work in North Dakota? If you wanted to go into standing egg land or crops, can you, with farmer permission, hunt it? Well, so on private land, if you have permission from the farmer, yes. Okay. Um, now if it was plots land and there's standing crop, no, I would avoid doing that. Um, and you know, I, I tend to avoid asking those questions anyway from people just because if they're letting you hunt your land, their land, um, you know, I, I would feel bad asking if I could then go traipse through the crop field. Um, sure. just because you, you don't, I don't know. I just kind of want to stay out of that and, um, I'll stick to trying to catch them before they get in those crop fields. Yep. No, that's, that's really sound advice. I, I, I think that goes to, goes back to hunters just like have common sense. Um, I'm driving down this gravel road and I see this was this past weekend and I see a goose carcass on the side of the gravel road. Now maybe oh. something drug it up onto the road and that's where it ate it. And it was in a remote area, but I stopped and I was like, this is ridiculous. A hunter definitely cleaned this bird and threw it down in the ditch and something drug it up. And it makes other hunters look bad. I mean, there's maybe this mentality that somebody says, well, I'm putting it back out there. Another bird's going to eat it or, you know, a fox or a raccoon or something like that. So it's going back out there versus into a dumpster. But it just gives hunters a bad look when a non-hunter sees that. And I even thought, you know, I've been a hunter my whole life. And I, when I see that stuff, I'm just, I shake my head and I'm like, come on, we can do better. So I think what you're saying, Emily, goes back to, you know, being respectful of other people in the land and, and setting a good example, whether it's for somebody that might be with you that would have done that or walked through a field that they maybe shouldn't. Um, we need to think about it. I'll leave it at that. Let's move forward. Uh, how many dogs do you have right now? So I own a Cocker Spaniel and an English Setter, and you've met them, Bridger and Riggins, and they're both great. Um, I, I love them to death, of course. Uh, right now, I also have a Pointer here and um, another Setter, uh, just a couple of dogs that needed run on some birds. Um, one of my friends, he's trying to make a go of it as a professional trainer. And so he didn't have as much time for his older broke dogs. So I've got one of his setters 
Um, and then I have a, a pointer from from Robert Jones, uh, my, my boyfriend. He's guiding down in South Dakota for the first time this year, and this pointer kept getting into porcupines. So oh, no. um, after the third one, uh, I offered to trade Riggins for this pointer um, so that Robert could have a dog to guide over. And I don't really see very many of them up, very many porcupines up in the immediate area where I'm at. Um, so I was hoping maybe I could just get him focused more on finding birds because he's pretty young. So we'll see. But the last one he got into was three weeks ago, and I just pulled out a couple quills last night from his face that have worked their way out. So uh, he's a sweet dog, but that's a tough habit to break. So we'll see. One thing that I appreciate about you well, is – You've written articles. I've enjoyed reading them. I've been in similar positions with my dog. But you're very real with your experiences with your dogs, training them, scenarios that happen out in the field. And you share those, those real-world struggles and experiences with people. Why do you do that? Oh, I don't know. I think, I think a lot of times people's egos kind of get in their way. And, you know, they want their dog and everyone loves their dog. Right. And, and the, you can love your dog and they cannot be the best hunting dog in the whole world. And, you know, and you can enjoy hunting with your dog, but it doesn't mean that they're the end all be all of bird dogs. And that's fine. And I don't need that. I don't need anyone else to see my dogs and think that they're the best dogs that have ever existed. And so I think just kind of letting go of that, ego a little bit, um, helps with just, just knowing that they're dogs. And at the end of the day, they're going to have great moments and they're going to have moments that make you want to cuss. And, um, and I still love them and it, yeah. it doesn't change the fact that they're, they're my best buds, but, um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're dogs. Um, they're not perfect. They're not machines. And, um, I don't know. So I just, and I, I'm, I'm the world's worst liar also. So <laughs> even if I did try to tell you that my dogs were the best dogs ever and they never made a mistake, um, yeah, it's, it wouldn't come across very genuine. So I don't know. I just like to be honest. I don't really like to, to feel like I'm trying to gatekeep or to make anything feel like it's unattainable for someone who's new and coming into it and, the biggest thing I try to tell people when they ask me, I get, I get quite a few people who ask me about, you know, raising their first bird dog and, and trying hunting for the first time. And, um, there's a lot of different ways you can do things. And as long as you're having fun and you're safe and you're following all legal, you know, um, all, all the game and fish laws and everything. Uh, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what someone else is doing or how someone else would do it or what someone else's dog does. If you're out there and you're having a good time and you're safe, um, that's, that's what matters. So you have great dogs. I've hunted with you and I've seen them in the field. So I can say that, um, whether you <laughs> want to or not, how do you, what, what has been your approach to training your own dogs? Um, it's very different with the, the types of dogs that I have between the two of them with Riggins. I always tell people all I did was teach him his name and take him out to find birds. And I'm very fortunate to be so close to the grasslands where I was able to just let him run 
and get into Sharptail and knock and chase birds until he learned on his own that it's a lot more satisfying to stand and, and point them. And that's where they get their satisfaction from. And, and, you know, that's what he wants to do day in and day out. Uh, so with him, it was just a lot of staying out of his way. He's a very well-bred dog. Um, and I mean, all that credit goes to his breeder, Kevin Jackson. Uh, so for me, it was, it was just staying out of his way and letting and putting him on birds and um, not overhandling him. I think a lot of people overhandle their dogs and kind of get in their head a little bit. Um, so just letting him mature at his own pace, making sure that I was putting him in good scenarios and, you know, letting him figure things out. Now with my Cocker Spaniel, um, who is my, my best buddy, uh, we do everything together. Um, I didn't know what I was doing with him. I got him in uh, the spring of 2018, and then that fall we moved out here to North Dakota. So we figured everything out as we went. Um, I put him on one pen-raised pheasant before I moved out here to North Dakota. So he had very minimal training other than obedience. And uh, I think with them, that's the, that's the foundation, or at least it was for me. And I've owned one Spaniel in my life. So um, I am by far not an expert, but um, having a really good foundation of obedience for them because you do want to keep those flushing dogs in gun range. And, um, you know, he's not necessarily steady to shot, but we have fun. We go out and find birds. And I think having him when I first moved out here was really what helped me figure out very quickly how to find birds because there wasn't ground that he was covering that, that I wasn't also, you know, right on his heels. So if we found birds, we are in them together. Um, whereas Riggins, I can drop him and, and he can make a cast that's eight or 900 yards. And then I just walk a beeline right to him and I'm not necessarily having to really scrutinize that habitat and um, try to decide where exactly I think those birds are going to be. So I think that hunting with Bridger made me pick apart a piece of habitat a lot more than, than I have to with Riggins because Riggins is going to go out and find birds and he's going to hold them till I get there. But um, with Bridger, it's just a little bit different between that, you know, flushing dog versus a, a big running pointing dog. I feel like, um, people that don't live in a place that has birds like you have out there um, can't really wrap their head around how a dog can learn by repetition and experience on their own because they don't have the luxury a lot. Let's say somebody in Ohio that's listening right now <clears throat> might have some birds at a game farm, but you know they travel west one or two times a year. By the end of that trip, they notice their dog hunting so much better just because of each day, the amount of birds they come into contact with. But so many people say, a, wild birds make a dog. And when you're out there and you continue to put them in those scenarios where if they flush the bird, they don't get it. If they hold it, you come up and flush the bird, shoot it, they get it. Like it really can change a dog so much quicker. But I think the struggle is even, even where I live in central Minnesota, the, num the number of birds is so much lower. So when I take my dog out there in the field, 
You know, we're working on foundation stuff again and again, and then letting her natural instincts, letting her, oh, no, you, you blew that one out. We didn't, she didn't get the shot or even a cap gun and training. I, I guess what I'm, what I'm getting at is the ability to go to a place like where you live or in North Dakota and have a lot of wild birds is so unbelievably important for somebody that's working with a dog because they'll learn a lot in a week just from being yeah. out there. The birds will teach them a lot. Definitely. Well, that's why a lot of the, the pro field trial dog trainers bring their dogs up to summer camp in the prairies because they want to get them on wild birds. Those dogs, most of them never have a bird shot for them. You know, if they're a serious field trial dog, they don't necessarily have birds killed for them, but it's just so much of that natural instinct to find and point those birds. You know, they, they get out of their puppy stage of wanting to knock and chase and everything. And as they mature, that really the pieces start to come together of, okay, no, I, I'm, I'm here to find these birds and, and point them. And that's what drives them. And, um, a lot of people, you know, a lot of dogs do really enjoy having a bird shot for them, obviously, but you know, then you, you look at those dogs and that's why we have such great hunting dogs is because of field trialers who have spent decades and decades refining those traits and characteristics and, um, making it so that we can take a dog like mine where I just taught him his name and took him hunting. And, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, I really didn't have to do it. I don't, I don't train him to point birds. He, he does that on his own. Yeah. His parents gave him that you, you've built the foundation, you know, of that relationship maybe is a better way of describing it for you two, but that relationship together and then, you know, the genetics in there. Let's, let's change topics just a little bit. At what point did you feel comfortable saying, I'm going to start traveling around North America in search of birds? Oh, I don't know that there was a specific point other than when I moved from Michigan to North Dakota. And that was kind of the first, the first big trip, I think. Um, before that, I had done one other out-of-state hunt for pronghorn in Nebraska. Um, and I had done that for a couple I don't know, four or five years before that. Um, so it wasn't a completely new concept to me. Uh, but, you know, the more I got into the upland community and the more opportunities I saw that were out there, uh, the more it just kept intriguing me. I, I love traveling. Um, and, and if I can travel with my dogs and hunt, uh, that's just icing on the cake. Um, I love seeing new places and, and learning about new species of birds and other wildlife and um, different terrain. Um, so I don't know. It's just, it's, it's everything about it. I mean, I'm sure you understand that's what you do. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, there's not one piece specifically that drives me. It's, it's everything that encompasses it, especially especially getting to see the dog work and challenging myself um, and getting to go to a new place and fail and learn and then eventually find success. Um, it's just really rewarding and, and really empowering. And uh, to know that I could pack up my Tacoma and, and hit the road and go try to chase whatever species it might be 
and um, to be able to feel comfortable enough in my own abilities and in my dog's abilities to go out and try it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I love it. And then getting to meet new people. I've met a lot of really awesome people through the upland hunting community. Um, a lot of connections that I've made on social media with people who I've then got to meet in real life. And, um, I know I get really excited being able to host a friend and tell them everything and more that they want to know about bird hunting in North Dakota and, you know, showing them what a pheasant roost looks like and, um, showing them the difference between a male and female sharp-tailed grouse and how you can tell based on the the feather pattern. And, um, and so being able to go meet other people in person and listen to them and be with them in the field, talk about what might be their biggest passion in their life. Um, that is really special. And I, I love getting to experience that. Where have you hunted the last two years, this year and last year? Cause it's a pretty extensive list. Oh, I don't know. I've. Don't mm, be so modest, Emily. You la- know, <laughs> you know, how about I start for you? Alaska, Colorado, <laughs> Montana, Arizona. Yeah. yeah. Um, Montana, North Dakota, Colorado, South Dakota, Kansas, Alaska. Um, I think all altogether, I've I've hunted like sixteen different states um, over the last few years. The last two years, I I'd have to sit down and, and make a list. Last year, I hunted in like eight different states. So do, I do you have any goals from- that you set at the beginning of season, or do you have goals that you're looking to achieve yet? Whether it's a particular bird species that you want to hunt, or you know, like some people are after the upland slam, like every species of birds. I mean, do you have your own goals? Um, you know, I have a, I have a real problem with, um, saying no to anything. And so just as things come up, I just think, well, yeah, I'd I'd like to do that. And, uh, (laughs) and then I go do it if I can make it work. Um, so I don't really have any master plan that I'm following. It's just kind of a, as things come up and as I uh, get a wild hair, um, then I decide I'm going to go do it. As far as this season, I would really like to get over to Oregon and um, California. I'd like to to hunt mountain quail um, and valley quail. Those are my last two quail species. I I wouldn't say I really have a bucket list of species I want to hunt because there's, like I said, there's not really anything I would say no to doing um, if things lined up. But uh, yeah, I'd I'd really like to try hunting mountain quail and valley quail. And then at some point, I keep telling myself every year, I'm going to go back home to Michigan and hunt rough grouse and woodcock. Um, but it is really hard to leave North Dakota in October. Yeah, it, it is such a wonderful place. So many opportunities. Of your journeys, the bird hunts that you've been on, they're, I know you're going to say they're all great in their own ways, but there's got to be something that stands out to you as like, this has been my pinnacle to this point. Yeah, it was, it was probably my hunt in Colorado recently. 
um, because it was hard. It was really hard. And there were some steep learning curves, literally and figuratively. And uh, <laughs> you accomplished what I tried to accomplish last year in hunting for ptarmigan, white, uh, white-tailed ptarmigan in Colorado. And I saw your photos and I thought, you go, girl. <laughs> you did it. Oh, and thank you. I tried to explain to people just the, the sheer um, lack of oxygen up there that changes the dynamic of everything. But maybe you can do a better job of putting it into words. Yeah. Um, I'm a flatlander. <laughs> so am I. Yeah. <laughs> through and through. And, um, that was never more obvious than you give me any sort of incline and it takes it right out of me. But, <laughs> and, and that's part of why I wanted to do it, um, is because I, I thought it would be really hard and I wanted to go do something that I didn't know if I'd be able to do or not. And I wanted to, I wanted to do the whole thing. I'm not a big camper, but I went down there and I camped. And, and so that was, that was a whole experience in and of itself. And, um, you know, it just felt good to do something that, um, I didn't think I would be successful at. And I, I in no way did it single-handedly. Um, I spent four or five days down there by myself trying to figure things out, had a little bit of success, but not a lot. And then, um, ended up meeting up with a, a husband and wife couple who, um, are chapter volunteers for us. They come up to North Dakota and hunt every year. Just the most fantastic people you could ever want to be around. And, um, and went out hunting with them and, you know, got to see their dogs work and got to talk to them about, they, they're born and raised in Colorado. And, um, so just getting to talk to them about, their experiences hunting all the different species there. And, um, and so that really added a lot to that trip, but yeah, I, I think that one so far and it's so hard to pick and there's pieces of every hunt that are always going to stick with me. Um, but that one just, just felt really good because, you know, I was down there and I was camping on my own and it it was nerve wracking, especially being a, a woman by myself. Um, I didn't anticipate the number of people that I would run into who not necessarily other hunters, but just people, um, who hiking the teeners. were just out there hiking. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and that made me pretty nervous. Um, and I didn't expect that and I, I probably should have, but I didn't. Um, so I got down there and set up camp at just under 13,000 feet. And I woke up at 4am and the, the area was full of cars of people getting ready to ascend this, this teener. And, um, yeah, I didn't expect that at all. And Did you have and any just, confrontations with them that were uncomfortable? What, because one, you were hunting and because two, you're a woman. That was my biggest fear. And that's what really made me nervous was I didn't, I didn't want to make anyone feel uncomfortable, but I also just didn't, you know, being by myself doesn't make me nervous. Being around other people in that scenario where I couldn't look at them and say, okay, yeah, they're, they're elk hunting here or they're, you know, they're also bird hunting. That would have been, or that was a much more welcome site because 
we automatically had that connection and I knew why they were out there and I knew that we were on the same page um, to an extent. And that was a new feeling for me to, um, to get into an area that's a very popular hiking destination. And I really tried to avoid, you know, if I got to an area and there were a bunch of people hiking um, or it looked like a popular area, then I just, I just went somewhere else because I didn't want to get in a situation where there was any type of confrontation. I didn't have cell phone service most of the time I was there. Um, and so I try to be really careful with things like that because you have to be, um, especially when you're by yourself. Uh, I, I just try to avoid any issues like that as much as, as much as I can control, I, I try to control it. So I had to move around a lot to find places that didn't have a bunch of people. And it, it was very frustrating at times. The Onyx Hunt app is one of the most valuable hunting tools that I take into the field every day. I use it on every hunt. Seriously, every hunt. Their app tells me everything I need to know about the lands that I want to hunt and the lands that we can all legally hunt on. The app also shows your location on planet Earth and clearly lays out the land boundaries. It tells you information about the type of property you're on, like state land or federal lands or walk-in access properties. It's ideal for scouting before the hunt and during a hunt to help put together patterns. The app also has helpful features that show you the kind of crops that are in fields, which obviously is a big deal for us upland bird hunters. And there's a timber cut layer to help you find the right forest habitat for rough grouse. If you hunt in North Dakota, there's even a layer that lets you know if a property has been posted electronically. These are just a few of the many tools Onyx apps give you. And these maps can even be used in areas without cell coverage. From the palm of your hand, Onyx Maps always help you to know where you stand. The flush. So fast, it hardly seems real. So vivid, the moment freezes in time before erupting in a blur of spurs and feathers. It's why we change the way upland loads are built with Prairie Storm. Exclusive flight control flex wad technology and a mix of copper plated lead and flight stopper pellets combine to create dense, deadly shot strains through any choke. Longer shots, more power, fewer missed birds, only from Federal. Waltons.com has everything, and I mean everything, for your everyday cooking and wild game processing needs. Plus, they have experts on staff to help you learn how to use those products to get the best results. John Tremblay hosts their MeatGistics podcast, live streams and live chats, which are interactive learning tools for the meat processing community. If you have questions, John and his team have the answers, from sausage making to smoking, recipes to seasonings, and so much more. Walton's products ship the same day you order. They have over 5,000 items in stock from grinders, mixers, stuffers, slicers, smokers, vacuum sealers, woo, and a whole lot more. Order the same seasonings and supplies that professionals use from the best name in the wild game processing industry. Then sign up for their monthly giveaways. Walton's, they have everything but the meat. I have to imagine that people would be more non-hunters or somebody that I wouldn't call him like an anti-hunter, but just somebody that doesn't hunt would be more open to hearing about it or inquisitive if they see a woman and her dogs out there going hunting versus, you know, a rugged man up there with his dogs. And that can be sometimes intimidating. You're not, yeah. inti- you're not intimidating. So do you have, do you frequently have people come up to you like, what are you doing? What, I mean, cause when I was up there on the mountains, they were, pe- they were hikers that we're like, oh, wow, that's a beautiful dog. What are you guys up to? And we're like, well, we're hunting for 
for ptarmigan. We're looking for birds. And they're like, oh, well, that's cool. You know, what do they look like? And we're trying to explain it. And they're like, all right, have a good day. But with you, I'm, I would imagine they might even be even more interested. Yeah. Um, or are you hiding behind rocks so you don't see them? <laughs> they don't see you. Well, you know, the, the thing is uh, with, with being a woman by yourself, and I know that, that you don't, you, you can't have that perspective. Um, you know, I don't really want people to know I'm there camping by myself. And sure. I don't really want people to know that this is my first time hunting in Colorado and I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, when I'm down there in those situations, miles from a main road, miles from a cell phone service, um, I have to be really careful with my interactions with people. I don't want to put myself in any sort of vulnerable situation because um, I already am in a vulnerable situation just being there by myself. So I just, I have to be really careful. And as much as I do enjoy socializing with, with people and telling them about my bird dogs and talking to them about hunting, um, I just have to be really careful with who I'm having those conversations with in those types of scenarios. Sure. Wow. It's, that's just something that I never have to think about, you know, and I know. for me to put myself in your position is hard to do. What could somebody like me do that would help you and other women in that scenario out? I mean, is there something for us to, as a collective whole listening right now? Is there something that we can do to help this situation? I mean, we, we clearly aren't somebody that you should ever have to worry about, but those people exist, which sucks. I, I don't know. Like, I just, I, I feel like I want to do something, Emily. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. Um... You know, it's, it's tough. I wish that there was a cure-all solution uh, to make everyone feel safe in pursuing their hobbies at all times and that they are uh, not just safe, but, but welcomed. Um, we do a lot of women's outreach events here in North Dakota. Our, our Lady Birds chapter out of Bismarck is phenomenal with doing outreach events. And I think that that type of stuff helps just making sure that you feel like you're prepared going into these scenarios and you know, like you're confident in your skills and abilities and being able to, um, you know, know what you're getting into or, you know, be able to kind of roll with the punches as they come. Um, so just providing people with the right skills and knowledge and, um, helping set them up for success. But other than that, it's, it's hard to pinpoint one thing in particular um, to help people stay safe out there. I'm, I'm probably not the best person to talk about it. Um, and uh, maybe maybe once I sit down and think about it for a while, I'll have something come to me. I'll send you an email later. But <laughs> sure. um, Well, you can write an yeah. article about it too, um, you know, okay. from your perspective. I, I just think, I mean... I wasn't expecting to talk to you about this right now, but when you open up this this real uh, feeling that you're having and experiencing out there, it makes me say, gosh, what can I do? How can I help, yeah. you know? And I hope other people, maybe it's just for us to think about it. You know, I, I always feel like when I see other hunters, kids, women, men, it doesn't matter. I want to be inviting towards them, friendly. Um, I hope other people feel the same way. You, um, you... And I talked just briefly before this conversation about some things coming up with Pheasants Forever. Um, 
How many chapters are there in North Dakota, which is where you're working? Yeah, we've got 23 active chapters across the state. Um, They all do incredible work on a local level as well as on a state and national level. Um, Our our chapter members are just the best people. I feel so fortunate to to get to know them and to help them when I can. Um, I think the best example of that I mean, there's a hundred examples I could share with you, but at our last state meeting um, last February, we had 29 volunteers at our state meeting, which is where we just, we all get together. We do state updates, national updates, um, just get everyone in the same room to socialize and uh, kick things off for the next year. So we had 29 volunteers there. And when we left our state meeting, those 29 volunteers had gotten Uh, 17 dog life memberships for PF and then 16 human life memberships. And so almost every single person in the room when we left was a life member of PF. And some of them even went on to buy dog memberships for people or memberships, life memberships for other people. And um, so they are just, they're all in uh, and you couldn't ask to be around a better group of people. Very cool. What what does what does banquet season look like in North Dakota? Because in Minnesota, it's I I feel like it's almost always late winter, early spring when we have banquets. Yeah, I don't feel like we have a lot of them during hunting season, but you guys do. We do. Yeah, we've got several banquets uh, coming up in the very near future. I'll list off some of the ones we have, but our chapters typically will do a fall banquet or a spring banquet spring banquet and it's split pretty much down the center um with with how those are are spaced out but um yeah most of them occur in the fall or um in the spring and then throughout the year across the state they're doing different outreach events they're doing learn to hunts learn to shoots uh youth pollinator events you know volunteering to clean up public lands i mean they're they're just always out there on the landscape doing what they can meeting those needs that that are out there. Um, I mean, they're just phenomenal people, but, uh, all of our events are listed on our Facebook page calendar. Um, so if you're coming up here to North Dakota, check and see if there's a banquet going on in your area, um, and consider going out and supporting them because they do really great work. So we've got Mackenzie County coming up on October 8th, um, as well as Peaceful Valley in Tioga. Um, and then Wood Lake and uh, the Goose Lake Banquet um, on the 28th. Uh, then Jamestown and Dry Lake in Ashley on the 29th. So we've got several banquets coming up this month. Um, and like I said, if you're if you're in the area, uh, check out our calendar of events and see if see if there's one that you can make the trip for. Um, In addition to that, on October 15th, our Kidder County chapter is putting on a Learn to Hunt event in Dawson. Um, So we've got several different exciting things coming up. And then our state team usually does what we call our Rooster Rally. Um, So, you know, we host all these different outreach events throughout the state, kind of throughout the year. And our Rooster Rally is just a chance to invite people out into the field who have maybe come to one of our outreach events before 
And this is just a, hey, let's go out and hunt. Let's meet at this piece of public land between you and me, and let's go out and, and try to shoot a couple birds. So it's a very um, low structure event, uh, but just giving people an invitation to come out into the field with us or, you know, on their own and then using the hashtag rooster rally so we can follow them on social media and, and see that they're out in the field and, and share their experiences and um, just kind of a way to bring people together in North Dakota and uh, get people out in the field. Well, you guys do an awesome job. I know you work with Renee a lot as well. And like you, she is an excellent hunter with a ton of knowledge, loves dogs, loves the land, loves the birds. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's fun to see you two out there. It's fun to watch your journeys that you've been on. Um, last question, all of these places that you've gone, you know, climbing mountains on your own and places that you've been, what is the number one thing you've taken from those trips that you applied to life or that you're most proud of that you've learned about yourself? <sighs> Oh, that's a tough question. Uh, I I think the value of feeling that level of independence can't really be overstated. Um, knowing that I can I can do hard things and um, helping show other people that they can also do hard things. Um, I I've really loved that aspect of, of all of this, um, being able to challenge myself and find success in a lot of different forms. Um, but just, just really gaining that sense of empowerment and independence, I think has been my biggest takeaway and, and what I'm most thankful for. Yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. It's, it's been fun, like I said, to watch you kicking butt out there and all the success you've been having. You're definitely inspiring people, so keep it up. And um, if I send a pair of gloves to you this winter, will you wear them? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I, I can't guarantee that. <laughs> Such a tough one. My goodness. Brandon, we're out there walking. It's, it's snowing. It's cold. And she refuses to wear gloves. Why? What's <laughs> the reason? They get in the way. They get, I always feel like I'm more, I don't know, I fumble things with gloves on. They I'm not all that coordinated anyway. But how can you feel the trigger when your fingers are numb? I know where it's at. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. I love it. She's got her hands in her pockets. She's got her gun over her shoulder. Rooster gets up 10, 15 yards in front of her. She grabs the gun, closes it, throws it up. Boom, one shot. Rooster down. Dog grabs it, brings it back. She goes, good job. I mean, it's when you like, have skills like that, you don't really need to wear gloves. I know. Though, so. I know. Like it, I want to be as cool as Emily. That's how I feel. <laughs> I mean, I go back and forth. I like to wear gloves. I've got those, you know, the soft cowhide leather. That makes a big difference. Anyway, um, Emily, appreciate you joining us today. Enjoy the rest of your hunting season. I hope I cross paths with you out in the field. And if somebody else does, uh, you'll you'll be blessed by Emily's presence if you do. So, uh, Brandon, with that, we will be back next week with another episode of the Flush Podcast. I'm Travis Frank, reminding you to take the time to introduce someone new to the field. 